Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers Festival. In this episode, few Going West sessions have drawn a crowd as big as this one from 2018. To mark 125 years of women's suffrage, Dame Fiona Kidman, Sandra Coney, Lizzie Marvelli and Goris Garriman joined Carol Hirschfeld for an electric discussion about the position of women in Aotearoa now. What's led us here, what's changed, what hasn't and what's still to be done. No mai hara mai, uh, nami hinui ki a koutou katoa, ko Carol Hirschfeld taku ingoa. Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone. Our session over the next hour is Women Then, Women Now. And when I look around this room, it is truly gratifying to see just how many women have been captured by this open-ended, simple topic. But I'd also like to say, of course, it's not just the subject matter. We're in the presence of some truly outstanding women guests on the stage today who will be sharing their views on how they see the position of women in this country now and what's led us here. And perhaps they'll also be able to shed some light on what they think could be ways in which New Zealand women could again lead the world toward creating more equitable societies. And I say again because we certainly put a strong stake in the ground 125 years ago, give or take four days or so, when New Zealand became the first self-governing country in the world where women could vote. Two-thirds of the adult women in New Zealand, that's around 90,000 women, cast a vote in 1893, an act of collective political will that changed everything. So we got off to a hiss and a roar, but I wonder how well we've realised the promise behind that first glorious step towards emancipation. Well, that's just one of the questions that I'm going to put to these good, wonderful women, our manuhiri, but let's take this opportunity to introduce each of them. Dame Fiona Kidman is one of our best-known and best-loved writers. In her novels, short stories and poetry, she has always put women the female experience at the centre of her art. She's been the recipient of many literary honours and is a strong and enthusiastic advocate for fellow New Zealand writers. Musician, author and award-winning columnist, Lizzie Marvelly is the founder of the on-site, online site for young women, villainess.com, and her latest and first book is this wonderful number, That F Word, Growing Up Feminist in Aotearoa. Co-founder and editor of the feminist magazine broadsheet, Sandra Coney, has written and contributed to more than 20 books, including the definitive centenary publication on women's suffrage, Standing in the Sunshine. She also co-wrote the magazine article which led to the cervical cancer inquiry, which then led to extensive changes in the New Zealand health system. And Golriz Garaman is an Iranian-born New Zealand MP representing the Green Party. She is proudly the first refugee elected to New Zealand's parliament, and she worked as a lawyer for the UN and as a barrister specialising in human rights, law and criminal defence. And now can we really give them some thunderous applause because <laughs> these, this is a really stellar crew of women. <laughs> Kia ora to you all. Kia ora, Carol. Just a year before Kate Shepherd and her fellow suffragists achieved the vote, the electoral law 
Here in New Zealand excluded women from the definition of person. So when we cast our minds back, what do you think these suffragists would think about where we're at and what we're proud of? And can I begin with you, Sandra? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that as a possible question, and my mind's been reeling as to what they would think, because um, a lot of them came out of a fairly socially conservative background. And, you know, a lot of the women came from the Women's Christian Temperance Union, where they were prohibitionists. Mm. And um, so if they suddenly arrived at the year 2018 and saw the social life that um, women lead now, <laughs> I think they might be a little wonder what on earth we'd done. <laughs> um, but on many of the issues, I think that they would, um, especially women um, issues to do with women in the workforce, I know we've got a long way to go with that, but it is so transformed from what was available for women at their time when working women, um, married women, I always th think about um, in the household, if the household needed extra money or the husband was unemployed, they took in washing and they took in sewing and, and doing um, by bits, being paid by bits to make collars and things like that. Um, and a lot of women were in domestic service, although New Zealand women resisted that, particularly Maori women. Um, that was expected that um, that would be part of colonisation, as happened in other countries, that indigenous peoples and a lot of the women that were brought out to New Zealand as single immigrants, that they would actually work as domestic servants. But the minute there was some other way of uh, earning a bob, they were off. Um, they much preferred the <laughs> shop or the factory to um, being in somebody's house and being vulnerable to advances from the um, masters, sons, etc. Um, so I think they would look at where we are in our education and in the workforce now and think it was pretty brilliant that we actually had as much choice as we do have now. And that, uh, in, particularly in the education area, that women are achieving so much through education. You touched on the fact that the early um, suffrage movement uh, grew out or alongside the temperance movement. I mean, sadly, um, we do not have a proud record currently in terms of what's happening um, with uh, alcohol abuse and other forms of, of abuse toward women and children in our communities. Is there, is there a line that we can draw between what was happening then and what is happening now? Well, I think that those, sometimes when you read some of the things that the suffragists um, were pursuing, like the evils of alcohol, I think they were damn well right. Um, so there's, I, I, we still have huge problems with mm. alcohol. Um, if anything, they're probably worse because more people have got more access to alcohol, um, and particularly with, with um, young people. But obviously the, the genie's out of the bottle as far as these concerns and what we we now try and do is very much trying to deal with the um, outcomes of alcohol being... In New Zealand, where we were just... For everybody, I think we've got a problem about alcohol. Could there be a possibility, Lizzie, for example, that we, we could look towards a new temperance movement? Do we need something like that, an updated version? Uh, well, potentially. Um, but I think that, you know, it is such 
an enormous issue, but we don't really talk about it in that way anymore. You know, we're all kind of aware that we do have a, a binge drinking culture um, and we have a lot of alcohol abuse. But um, I think, you know, as women, we haven't really taken on that issue so much in the modern era. We more kind of focus on the, the issues of domestic violence and sexual violence and those kinds of things, which are, you know, often, I won't say a byproduct, but are often related to the issues of addiction um, and alcohol abuse and those kinds of things. So I think that we just need to have more open conversations about those issues. And actually, to go further than that, um, you know, with sexual violence, for example, to, uh, you know, we really need to look at the justice system and the way that it actually doesn't serve victims um, across many different forms of, of victimhood or survivorhood, shall we say. So I think that, yes, that is one of the root um, kind of factors that contributes to our abusive statistics, our terrible abuse statistics. But I think that, uh, you know, as Sandra was saying, the genie is kind of out of the bottle. So we need to look at the other structures, like poverty, like um, the justice system, that I think need uh, updating and they need to be changed to change the landscape for victims and survivors. Goldis, Kate Shepherd was pretty open about realising that, you know, it was just a beginning what her and her colleagues did uh, in terms of the suffrage movement, in terms of making change. But it was an important beginning. And I guess one of the things that you've argued very cogently about is that, that one of the issues we face is that when we make change around legislation, structural change, often we can stand back and think, well, that's the job done. Social change will seamlessly follow th from here. But, you know, this is probably one of the greatest issues that we face. Yeah, that's right. I wonder if the suffragettes would um, be shocked at how complacent we've become about gender issues. Um, you know, how we've kind of ticked that box. Well, they ticked the box. <laughs> and we've all kind of just sat back and, 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 and in fact, we see with... Um, feminism becoming a dirty word. Mm. Um, we see that kind of um, guilt exhaustion or protest exhaustion um, that we've adopted as a society where we actually lash out against people who speak out about gender issues, as we do, um, you know, with race or um, whatever else, inequity, that, some, you know, that, that gets raised. As New Zealanders, we quite often sort of go, no, we're good. We, you know, we've got that big bad neighbour up, you know, <laughs> up north. <laughs> so they're bad, and we're good. We're, you know, we're this egalitarian society. We gave women the vote first, um, but actually, to some extent, we've got to watch it because that may have bred complacency. And I kind of just want to jump mm. in there because I think with some of the corridor that we've already had this morning, I'm just thinking about, you know, my Māori tūpuna, and I'm thinking that, um, you know, actually. New Zealand women or New Zealand wahine already had the vote per se, some of them, in um, pre-contact society. Um, and, you know, I kind of think about what they would potentially think looking at, you know, the, the say, Miri Te Taimanga Kahia, for example, or um, Niniwa Itirangi or um, Akinehi Tomuana, who are, I, can I actually just ask if anyone in this room knows who those people were? A few people. And who knows who Kate Shepard is? Yeah, exactly. So we have this kind of um, unspoken, untold history, and I think that those women potentially looking forward um, wouldn't really be as 
enthused, I think, you know, because we really haven't come as far as we should in terms of Māori rights and um, Māori equity. So I just kind of wanted to inject yeah, myself and, there. And there's, that, there's a meeting point with gender as well, isn't there? We were talking, um, because we seem to be talking a lot um, <laughs> <laughs> on panels recently, um, about the gender pay gap which I think is sort of the next frontier in a way in terms of, you would think, low-hanging fruit. Um, but we're looking at the stats and the, the vast gap between women based on race is something that we just never talk about. Mm. So the pay gap, you know, between Pākehā women and uh, the general male population is 6%. But if you look at Pacifica women, it's 23%. That's massive. Māori women, it's 20. Asian women, it's 18%. So, you know, and we, we just, we need to let that sink in mm. and understand that, you know, it, that our civil rights aren't really being equally sort of experienced and that's having other repercussions for people, really very real ones. Um, and then think about whether that dehumanisation is actually having a massive effect on the levels of violence that we're suffering including sexual violence, because, and I'm so glad, Carol, that you brought up, you know, we, we weren't considered people. Mm. That's what it's related to. Um, and so, you know, we, we're still overly sexualised and suffer from that, and we're not paid the same because our labour is not valued the same, because in a way we're still not considered equal as human beings. Fiona, when you hear these younger women talking... S slightly, dare I say, depressingly <laughs> about the state of affairs in, in some ways and, and where, where the shortfalls are still in terms of women's position uh, in New Zealand society. When you reflect back on your life, though, how, how do you feel that there is great complacency that we are still suffering from? Oh, dear. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I come from this from a very personal point of view, really. It's, and I, I, I'm not sure that I can hypothesise about, about complacency. I'm a, a, a mother, a grandmother and a great-grandmother, and I've been watched these people grow up alongside me, and one of the things that I, I greatly believe in is that we as women can create great role models for young people and to be loving and engaged with young people is the most useful thing that I as a human being am able to do. I was just interested in what Sandra said earlier about was talking about women who were in who were servants and who had to do extremely hard labor and so forth. I mean I come from a generation where my mother was like that. We lived right up north in, in the far north when I was a child, straight after World War II. And my mother had been had gone up there under slightly false pretenses, but that's a rather long story, but had <laughs> ended up as being servants for some kind of Raj people who had gone and settled up in the north and wanted to have lives where they could have um, nice climates, um, and, and servants thought that, rather mistakenly, thought that they could have servants. We lived in a little army hut where we didn't have electricity when we began. My mother's life was extremely harsh. And I, have, I was very protective towards my mother, and I've always, 
I think that was the beginning of my wanting to trace the lives of, of women, and I have tried to do that throughout my writing life. Um, my latest book, actually, is about a boy, but one of the things that I have come to the conclusion about after many years of making women the central characters in my novels is that if we just start to discount men as part of our society, then we're lost indeed, because I think that um, things can only become more difficult if we start to margin, as women, we start to marginalise men. Fiona, I want to stay with the personal, because um, when you were a young woman, you were coming of age, really, um, into adulthood in the 60s. And it's a time that we think of as being incredibly progressive, a time of sweeping change. But, but you wrote, um, there was still fear lurking below the surface of domestic lives. What did you mean by that? Well, I'm actually, uh, perhaps are you relating this to the, to the chapter I've written yes. in, in Women Now? In Just perhaps briefly to tell you that about this book, Women Now, it's a set of essays that we're asked, in, asked to write, and to Papa gave each of the commissioned people, of which Golris and Sandra and myself were, uh, have participated in it, and we were given each given an object to write about. We were commissioned, and then we were told what we were going to write about. I was given the anovular contraceptive pill to write about. <laughs> um, Charlotte, Charlotte McDonald's got the banknote with um, uh, Kate Shepherd on it. Uh, I said to her, "They must think that you know a lot about um, about money," and I. Charlotte, and she said, well, they must think that you know a lot about sex, Fiona. <laughs> I'm not sure. However, one of the things that I've written about in my essay, well, I had to write to that particular subject, and I talked about the, the, the change of, in birth control. And when I was, I mean, I've, I was, got married when I was 20 in 1960, in the 1950s, it was a time of um, it was a time when we were having we had quite a lot of new freedoms, I think. But with the freedoms came an immense amount of fear—the fear that you mentioned, the fear of pregnancy—and um, and really our bodies were ready for sex, but we wouldn't necessarily have all read met the right mate, our lifetime mate, and the consequences of having sex outside marriage was so desperate. It was, we were terrified. I mean, we lived in a state of suspended terror, I think, because, you know, most of us did, ha did have sex. There weren't a lot of virgins that trotted up <laughs> to the aisle. <laughs> but a lot of women had marriages which were the outcome of, of maybe short relationships or unsatisfactory relationships or one-night stands. And, or else people ended up in, in, in homes where they, had, where they gave birth, lonely births, had lonely births, gave up children, are still now in this day and age, looking for the children that they gave up in the 1950s. So 
just to come to the point of, of the, the contraceptive pill, the first one appeared in New, in New Zealand or that, that was prescribed was in 1963, and I think it was the inovular contraceptive pill. And with that came a lot of change, a lot of new freedoms. Um, women were able to plan their lives much more ably. I mean, it's not, I, people still have unplanned pregnancies, of course, but there are ways of dealing with them that didn't match the, the sort of fear that we felt at that time. Sandra, as a health campaigner, and I mean, you know, you were involved in, in, act, in how helping women deal with those unwanted pregnancies at a time when laws were draconian in this country. Well, I also want to say that I, you know, I got married at 18 and had a child at 18, and that's what you did then. It wasn't anything unusual. So I, I get a bit bemused when they go on about the problem of teenage pregnancy, because it really wasn't a problem in the 1960s. It was what you were encouraged to do. What they really mean is people having babies that don't have a man to support them. But um, so. I, I was also one of the people that was prescribed that very early contraceptive, which, which completely wrecked havoc with your life, yeah. um, with your health, um, because they were so strong. You know, they probably would have been able to stop an elephant from. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> it's terrifying, isn't it? I mean, we were just guinea pigs, basically. <laughs> but I, I then became uh, later on involved because oh, I became involved in Auckland Women's Liberation, and when a group of people wanted to start an abortion clinic and test the New Zealand law. They came to the women in Auckland Women's Liberation because they thought these are women who would take the risk of um, becoming involved in that workplace, which I did. And um, so I've seen enormous change in, but I think more important than the sort of medical change and the control that's given women over their health is the enormous social change that has occurred in my adult lifetime. Because when I was growing up, if you were divorced, that was sort of said you were a divorced woman. You were kind of put over there as some sort of um, siren that you had to keep your husband away from. Um, and a woman, as you said, you know, when I was first married, I was living in Kalmana Avenue, Hearn Bay, and there was a home for unmarried mothers down the road, and I used to look at them walking up the road and their bellies getting bigger and thinking, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Um, and so that was, women were shut away and sent away and had their babies taken off them. And now I see people who could get married and then get pregnant, actually get pregnant and then get married or don't get married, and nobody seems to give a damn. And I think that's completely wonderful, that those kind of stigmas that were attached to human behaviour have gone, and it's actually, you know, and women don't have to give up their babies. Um, exactly. there's, a, there's a lot more social support for people, and just the condemnation that went with not doing things the way you were meant to do them seems to have largely disappeared. And it's extraordinary that it's happened over this relatively short period, and I'm not exactly sure how or why. I actually think most of the changes that have taken place for good for women suit the economy. I've come to that conclusion <laughs> recently. And the ones that we haven't done and still need to do and still need to be working on are the ones that really upset the marketplace a great deal more. Mm. So basically, we need... <laughs> <laughs> 
we needed more worker bees in the system and therefore things changed socially to allow that to happen. Well, I think they let the social change happen because sometimes they don't, sort of really don't matter. So I think sometimes women get the things that really don't bring about fundamental changes mm. in society because if you actually look, a lot of the problems women have now are because the workplace has not changed to accommodate. And if you just see that fuss that was made about Jacinda Ardern going off to Nassau, um, you know, you think, my God, it does it. We still have a male model of um, the working life of human beings in New Zealand. You, you mentioned the idea of condemnation. I was fascinated in your chapter when you talk about the fact that you were um, at university and you became part of the organisation that was trying to have a creche established at that university. When your name was printed in the Auckland Star, your mother-in-law wasn't very impressed. <laughs> no, well, she was quite a conservative person and um, that's what she told me that... Um, that a woman only had her name in the newspaper when she was born, married and died. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> I would be completely we're not doing yeah. scandalous. We're not, we're not doing well. Sandra, can I just come in here and say that you are, to me, a heroine. I've admired, I've admired you and followed you over many years. I And I, one of the... One of the things that I want to say is thank you for starting Broadsheet, being one of the co-founders of that collective, because you made such a difference to um, women writers. Um, you were feminist in so many ways, but for we women who were actually trying to write about, um, about women's lives at that time, you provided a platform for, for us, and that's something that I'm well, immensely really grateful for. I'm, I'm also grateful for the fact that you are one of the people who um, founded Sisters Overseas, just going back to the question of, of unplanned pregnancies, because things were so difficult at in the 19, uh, 1970s mm. that mm. women were being having to go to Australia that, um, to, to have um, abortions if they had... If they had no, they had no access to um, abortion, even in the most desperate circumstances, and you founded that, helped to found that organisation, Sisters Overseas, that helped the women, particularly from country districts, to go to Australia, and I was part of that movement too. So, you know, you've played a very significant part in my life, and I thank you. Oh, thank you. That's nice to know. <laughs> Fiona, that's beautiful. To tribute. But I, you raised the issue of women writers and, and I'd love to stay with this because, uh, you know, when I look back at uh, your own career, it was highly unusual that you were working as a young woman at home because you'd chosen to be a writer. How difficult was it at that stage to be a woman writer in New Zealand? I was so incredibly naive that I didn't know that it was the wrong thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Though I found out very quickly, because what, the, what having your name in the paper was pretty much how it was. I was living in a in a suburb in a in a smaller city, and I. It was really very much a case of who does she think she is. I, I I'm a very great follower of the writer Alice Munro, and she 
has one of those, an, an essay of hers in which she says, who do you think you were? And it was exactly the same. I mean, we have a history of, of I think the history of women writers in this country has been quite difficult. I'm not just talking Catherine Mansfield, I'm talking about writers like Jean Devaney in the 1930s who wrote The Butcher Shop, which was banned and then she left to go to Australia. Talking about people like Robin Hyde who wrote this most magnificent prose and poetry, went to London and took her own life. Young women who, who really suffered it was difficult by in the 1960s when I started off on this this rather strange journey. I'd been a librarian and I was books were my life and I had always written and I thought, well, I, I mean, why not? Um, but it was hard. Um, there were some terrific role models around at that time. There were people like um, Janet Frame just writing um, Faces in the Water, which um, Owls Do Cry. There was Marilyn Duckworth who was writing very frank novels. Um, and there was, yeah, I mean, these people were, sustained me and made me believe that it was possible to keep going. But it wasn't really until I went to Wellington and was able to join a larger group of, of women writers who, who sustained me. Um, and even then, I mean, there were some dear old chaps who were very fond of Dennis Glover, but he went around mouthing off about the menstrual school of writers and <laughs> all of this, you know. Mm. I felt that it was, that we were marginalised and the changing, the time that changed it was International Women's Year, 1975. And there was this, these huge conventions, national conven women's conventions. And I remember going to the one in, in um, Newtown in Wellington. And I thought, and I was going, asked if I'd do a little um, seminar, and I thought maybe 20 people would come. There were 2,000 people at the, <laughs> at the seminar, at the, at the convention. And hundreds came to my to to my session because I was standing on an apple box. It was raining outside. The mud was streaming. People had to walk through the mud to get to the convention. But there I was on my apple box, and there were all these people who wanted to write because they had stories to tell. And I think it's through storytelling that has made also made a great difference to the to the lives of women. Um, yeah. Sandra, Fiona um, mentioned how important it was to have something like broadsheet in her life, and obviously it is having that group of, that, that collective that can sustain you in terms of having a place where you hear authentic women's voices. Tell me, what was the response when you co-founded that publication? Broadsheet? Yes. Ah. Uh... I, well, we, uh, I'm really curious about the fact that we used to go and sell them in pubs. Into <laughs> <laughs> the lion's den. God. <laughs> only men were allowed in pubs then. You remember there were pub liberations. You know, this is the public bar we'd sail in. And um, we just hoped they'd take them home to their wives. But <laughs> the reaction... Um, well, I think we, the, the time was one of challenging lots of ideas in lots of different areas. I mean, there was this sort of Vietnam War protest going on. 
Um, there was a lot of uh, youth activity, like um, uh, young people organising. Uh, and I think, you know, I used to go around selling them in these different places and you'd have arguments with people. You sort of expected it. But I, I think just picking up on something Fiona said, that actually because you were part of a group of women, none of it mm. mattered. You know, mm. the, the negative stuff didn't matter because you were part of a constituency that was supporting you. And in the feminist movement at that stage, that became kind of like your whole life, like you socialised with these people. Um, so you were, you know, like if there was negative reaction out there, you just sort of sailed through it, really. Um, so, and you got so much good feedback, uh, and once again, picking up on what Fiona was saying, like, there were a lot of rural women that would contact us who were really isolated, and just this was a lifeline to get ideas and hear from other women that were not satisfied with the lot that they'd been born with. And um, so I think although there was uh, negative stuff, and, and I mean, a lot of it was infuriating, like the newspapers would only ever refer to you as women's libbers. Um, and Pigeonholed neatly. We, well, and then you'd get the women that would pop up and say, I'm not a feminist, but, and so... <laughs> Uh, we I have a chapter on that. Yeah, so, but on the whole, the, I think it was you were buoyed up by the the, the sort of um, support from women, and uh, contrary to what's often thought in Auckland, I can't talk about the rest of New Zealand, but the the women's movement, what was then was in the early days, was not a sort of university based one. There was a lot of them were like myself, young mothers, housewives from the suburbs who got involved. It was a very broad-based uh, movement in that way. And so you knew that it was speaking to people in many, many different parts of life. Lizzie, I, I want to bring you in here because there isn't this nice continuum when we hear um, Sandra talking about broadsheet, mm. um, looking at what you've done in, in terms of establishing an online platform for women in Villainess. Um, and I, I mean, it's it's fantastic. Sandra's talking about that constituency of of supporters. Mm. Yet when I look at um, social media, I see individuals standing mm. out constantly and feeling the full force of negative mm. um, responses and and feedback. Yeah. Tell me what what has your experience? Well, what is your experience continuing to be? And and are you finding that? Uh, being online in the way that you you are the same kind of sustaining experience that Sandra did. Uh, I find that the the thing that keeps me going really there's really two things. Um, one is young women, and you know my kind of my most constant connection I suppose with young women is through Villainess, and you know Villainess has. I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, maybe 100 writers, and probably, I'd say, 85 of them are young women. Um, you know, the others may be gender-diverse people or some older women and some men. Um, and the young women that I hear from, both as readers and writers, are just astounding. And the, their opinions, what they have to say, the way they see the world is just so heartening and reassuring. And so that really buoys me to continue doing what I'm doing. Um, online, the thing that sustains me uh, are other women. And, you know, you do 
I, I mean, I can't even explain what it's like to just be kind of constantly attacked online. Um, but it really does start to take a toll after a while. And the kinds of people that I've become increasingly, incredibly grateful for are people like Ali Moore, um, Paula Penfold, Kirsty Johnson, um, you know, Johnston, I should say, sorry, Verity Johnson. Um, those other women who are other women writers, they get it too. And, you know, there'll be little things like someone will send me a private message or send me a text and say, oh my God, I've just seen what's been happening on social media. You know, the, excuse my language, but the fuckers. Um, <laughs> what can I do to, to help and are you okay? And that kind of sisterhood, it does still happen and we're just, we're so lucky for it because, I mean, I, I don't really think that I would be able to continue doing what I'm doing, you know, writing columns, having things like Villainess, making My Body, My Terms and, um, you know, writing books like this. Uh, if I didn't have that kind of sisterhood who, who I know I've got my back. Were you galvanised by the negativity? Mm, yes, I think in a way. Um, because, I mean, I was the kind of kid who would fall off the swing and get back up and kick the swing. Um, so, you know, I, I don't really take anything lying down. Um, I think you'd been reading th these women's books. <laughs> Probably, <actually>. exactly. <laughs> and I'm, I know that I am so lucky for, you know, women like you both who, and, and the whole generations of women who have come before me because... You know, I'm just a, uh, you know, a kind of recipient of this Im immense legacy. And really, it's just, it's my job and it's our job as young women to continue that work and to, uh, you know, honour our older sisters uh, for the work that, that you've done. But I honour you because young women and men are going to save the world. Mm. Not oh, I, thank you. No. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. You, you, you've, got, you've got a big weight to carry because... We look to you with such expectation, not just in New Zealand, but around the world. And thank you for carrying on, no, doing, the, doing the, th the walk. Absolutely. That's beautiful. <laughs> and, and Fiona, you're absolutely right. And, and, and I want to bring you in here, Golris, too, because, um, you know, one of the things... Uh, that we haven't had much time to touch on is is around the experience of someone like yourself who not only as as someone growing up as a woman in Aotearoa but you came here with a and have another dimension mm. to your life as as being somebody from outside this society and having to cope with that and being different and coming in so you know yeah. <laughs> and 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 on top of all of that you've 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 chosen a path to stand up and lead as well yeah, I don't think I ever saw... I, I never thought I was going to be, like, the first refugee MP when I decided to run. So that was definitely... Um, I never even really engaged with that refugee identity until a few years ago when um, the great crisis in Syria was sort of producing millions and millions of refugees and that was being reported on because it was touching Europe. And, and people reached out to me to kind of be involved with awareness raising campaigns and things like that. And I kind of thought, OK, my fear of tokenism is maybe secondary to the people drowning in the Mediterranean. Um, but so that's been an identity point that I've had to kind of adopt and grapple with um, almost involuntarily in politics. Uh, but again, I mean, I really relate to what Lizzie was saying in terms of what sustains us. Um, because I announced my candidacy around the time of the Trump Muslim ban. 
And so it was kind of, it, it was funny because I ended up standing as um, this counterpoint to that other kind of politics that was on the rise over there. And so I had young women of colour, of all sorts of different backgrounds, sort of reaching out to me um, to say what it meant to them. And that's completely unexpected for me. But, you know, they hadn't... they couldn't see anyone else that was like them and it meant something to them to have someone that might have a similar story or a similar face or whatever um, in leadership and just as they were being so degraded and dehumanised um, around the world. Um, but I do also want to let something else sink in that Lizzie said. She, she said that she's not sure she'd be able to do what she does without the support. And that's what's happening online. Mm. Like, we live online, mm. we run businesses online, we write and publish online, we talk politics online. That's the new frontier. That's another huge Sounds dimension good. of our lives. And we're being systematically attacked and, and silenced. And it is totally purposeful. You know, the oh, idea is to 100%. silence us. It's, it's literally an Amnesty International New Zealand campaign this year because it's seen as a huge human rights issue for women um, and again they kind of disaggregate their data and for women of colour it's you know a hundredfold yeah, and, you know different the LGBT community a absolutely the trans community as we've just disability seen disability community uh, absolutely and it's uh, not just sort of turn your phone off then mm -hmm. because they actually just don't mean, talk then yeah, they won't yeah. talk back <laughs> that's what you get told you know you get told, it's the same as the gender pay gap when they tell you to lean in it's not our responsibility. Yeah, it's, like it's our fault. We need change, you know. I'm sorry for having an opinion. Yeah. <laughs> so the message is to withdraw. Yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah, the message is, you know, don't pay any attention or turn your phone off or whatever, which means for some women... Don't feed the trolls. Yeah, shut off your business then mm. or whatever they're doing. But it's actually causing... So the stats show it's causing women um, mental health issues, anxiety, depression, and in some cases leading to real violence. One of the things I was going to ask you, really, did, did you find and do you still find New Zealand a, a welcoming country? Well, New Zealand is my country. Yeah. <laughs> so I do. I, I, I mean, I came home to New Zealand after being sort of on and off elsewhere in Tanzania and Cambodia and wherever else because I actually, this is the only home I have. I can't go back to Iran. Um, it is. It's. I love Auckland. It is welcoming. It's. It's my people and my home. And I don't. I'll never relate to another culture in in the same way. I mean, I'm proud of this culture. I'm proud of this legacy. Mm. You know, these women led the world. Absolutely. And that's what I feel in New Zealand. But I do think we need to kind of stop and go. Some of these other things, like the domestic violence, like the racism like the sexual violence and the gender pay gap, all of those things are cultural as well. They're part of New Zealand culture, but the great thing is you can change culture. You can evolve. <laughs> That's a wonderful message. Now, I am going to take this opportunity to actually open the floor to questions because I'm, I'm looking at our clock ticking down and I don't want to run out of time. And I'm sure that there are some some questions around the room. We have a microphone, which Mark is going to get to you, um, or the, our other... Oh. Yes. yes. Um, I think we've got a microphone right here. Okay. 
Hi, I'm Susan. I want to know if you, any of you think that we need a, to have a huge campaign to get the um, liquor industry under control in this country, apropos of what you were talking about before. The new temperance movement. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have an opinion on that. Um, that has come to me as part of my trade portfolio because I got really concerned when the TPPA got adopted after the election because it may stop things like that. Um, so I, you know, the medical council want us to put warnings um, about fetal alcohol syndrome on bottles, just as you know, the tobacco industry is being forced to do. That just, I mean, at least that would be a starting point where you're really confronted with the real physical dangers of alcohol. Um, but I also do deeply believe that addiction is, is something that we need to treat, as Lizzie was saying earlier, as you know, being part of a bigger social problem. Mm. You know, so social disconnection is what leads to addiction. Yeah. Um, and so you know, we do need to actually invest in people and, and mental health services so that people aren't accessing alcohol as a way of getting over their anxiety yeah. <laughs> or, you know, because they don't have a job or because um, their housing situation is precarious or whatever else. Yeah, and I think we need to broaden that conversation as well. Um, I'm, full disclosure, I'm a, a member of the board of the New Zealand Drug Foundation and I'm kind of looking towards this um, referendum that we're about to have on cannabis use um, or legalisation of cannabis or decriminalisation. And I just feel like uh, this conversation around addictive substances is something that we need to have as a community and we need to broaden it to include alcohol because I think a lot of people don't really think about alcohol as a drug and it is a drug and for me you know the the most important things are you know educating people and dealing with those root social causes of addiction um, and just having this uh, conversation where we try to reduce harm and we make it possible for people to access the help that they need without fear of legal repercussions. Actually, that reminds me <clears throat> of when that whole cannabis, you know, the ecstasy, criminalisation stuff happened was the, Nixon trying to shut down the 1960s, you know, freedom movements. <laughs> and they, they thought, you know, all these women, all these civil rights, the anti-war protesters wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't for these particular drugs and alcohol was excluded because that was because it's such a just you know a drug adult idea stopping war yeah yeah you might you must yeah it's, it's <laughs> why would you so do that anti-social to want war to stop <laughs> just an answer to you i'd go a heck of a lot further i i don't think education is going to get you there and i think a lot could be done through legislation and and I would get rid of any advertising for alcohol anywhere. Mm -hmm. yeah, I would get point. rid of all alcohol sponsorship. And we've learned from tobacco that if you actually make it more difficult to get and more expensive, you cut down the use and that will start people off thinking that they can quit. So um, I'd be a bit more authoritarian, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Another question. We've got one just here. Hi. Um, my question is about sort of reflecting on, say, the second wave of feminism and, and where we are with feminism today. Because I grew up in the 70s and that kind of glow of the women's lib movement, the girls can do anything campaigns, which I took to mean I could do anything I wanted with my life. Um, but when I work with young women today, I get the sense that they don't feel liberated, that they feel 
obligated to kind of do everything and mm. that there isn't any choice. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons that they're turning away from feminist or um, feminism as a as a a way of, of mm. getting them the kind of happiness or fulfilment in life that they want. I think um, that potentially the problem is not that there are no choices, it's that there are too many choices. And, yeah. you know, my take on that girls can do anything slogan, because I grew up and, you know, fully indoctrinated with that as well, which I'm really grateful for. Um, it's that just because we can do anything doesn't mean we have to do everything. And I think that this younger generation is really struggling under enormous yeah. pressures, you know, um, not just the expectations of their whānau and their teachers and their communities, uh, but also with social media. You know, they're constantly, they open Instagram and they see these lives that they're meant to be living, you know, these perfect, insta-perfect lives. Um, and, you know, their friends who might have a thousand followers and they've only got 200 followers and there's all this inadequacy and all of these kinds of issues. Um, but I think that actually more and more young women are turning to feminism to escape from that because a lot of those issues are around expectations around body image and you know those kinds of things kind of popularity contests and a lot of young women that that I speak to are turning to feminism because they actually are sick of that and they want those expectations to be removed um, you know I was just I was at Christchurch Girls High a few weeks ago talking to a bunch of girls there um, and the things that they were, were saying you know we're incredibly feminist and there has been a real move towards feminism but I think for you know our kind of responsibility I think my one of my responsibilities is to deconstruct that idea of feminism so that young women can find their own way into feminism and not feel like, you know, it's this big, bad, ugly thing, which, by the way, it's only seen as a big, bad, ugly thing because it dared to challenge the male status quo and then it got a whole lot of mud slung at it. So I think a lot of that is just kind of giving young women pathways into feminism, which is kind of like what I've been trying to do with Villainese. Um I would say... Oh, sorry, <clears throat> do you want to go? No, I was just go going to um, say about that. I think that's an area where things have got worse for women. Mm -hmm. Look, um, that w when I think about things like pornography, for instance, um, in the early days of the women's movement, the worst thing that could, you know, what we were challenging was a few posters outside dairies for Playboy magazines. That was the only way anybody could access pornography, and it was very mild compared with what's mm. available now, whereas now it's coming at young people from a multitude of directions. And so I think, you know, the social media thing and electronic age has made things a lot harder to deal with around those kind of social expectations around body image or sexuality, yeah. etc. So um, there are new things, I think, that, you know, like there's a whole lot of old things that haven't been completely sorted. But there are new manifestations of, of issues that I think are much more difficult to deal with because they're pervasive and you can't, like, when you think of the the posters outside the dairies, you could go into that dairy and say, we're going to boycott your dairy or we're going to smash up your posters or whatever we're going to do. <laughs> but um, Or you could write to somebody and say, this book that we, you know, is in schools is blah, blah. But now, I mean, it's just like, where would you start? Yeah, totally. And it's, it's one thing that I've heard recently is that a lot of 
girls in schools in Auckland are actually, um, well, there's a couple of bits. I'll try and make this really quick because I know we're running out of time. But there's some research that shows now with, with porn that a lot of uh, young men, as young as kind of 10 and 11, are wanting to cre recreate things that they've seen in porn um, in their own lives. And then also a lot of teenage boys, there's a particular study in the UK which just ugh, makes me feel sick. A lot of boys are saying things like, oh, well, you know, if you just try to anally penetrate her for long enough, then she'll just eventually give in. And girls are kind of expecting to have to put up with those kinds of things. Um, and what the thing I was going to say about Auckland schools at the moment is I've been recently hearing that a lot of teenage girls are feeling like they have to have anal sex and also that anal sex is being peddled as a way to avoid pregnancy. So, um, condoms, guys. <laughs> um, but that's one of the things that, like, you know, we are trying to fight back, I think. I kind of want to reassure Sandra a little bit, like, we made a web series called The Real Sex Talk earlier this year, uh, which is in now in a lot of health classes, only in liberal schools, because, you know, our um, sexuality education curriculum is just utterly second rate. It's just, it's not up to where it should be. But, um, you know, in that we've got a whole episode on porn, so we, we are making efforts, but yes, there are new challenges that are pretty scary. Can I just say with the last 10 seconds, I think <laughs> what the problem I see with feminism in terms of the way um, young people may or may not relate to it is that it, it does need to evolve and be far more inclusive. Um, so I think the, the choice that may be seen on the face of it from, say, second wave feminism is that you have to look a certain way, you have to want, you know, you have to want it all, you have to, and so we're not including the porn stars or the, you know, or the um, poor brown girls or, you know, so you have to do feminism in a certain prescribed, very... Um, Park a very middle class way, and those are where your big ambitions come from, and you have to be stripped of your culture in order to be a feminist for some of us. And so I think one other frontier for us is to recognise that different cultures and women from different backgrounds also have very authentic, fierce feminism. Um, and, and feminism broadly needs to include all of that. We need to support each other in that. It must be intersectional. Yeah, we need to stand together in that solidarity um, means that we do have to talk with a really open mind to other feminists. And Golria's on that hugely thoughtful note, I'm going to have to bring this session to a close. And I, we could go on for about the rest of the day. Um, and, but I, I also, as I bring it to a close, I just want to wave these books at you. We have been referring to both of them during the session, uh, which are the essays in Women Now, um, which three of our writers on stage contributed to, From to Papa, incredibly thoughtful collection, and of course Lizzie's first book here, the F word, growing up feminist in Aotearoa. Um, can I just thank you all so much for generously giving of your time and your experiences and your ideas and your opinions. It's immensely frustrating, I've got to say, because so much more could have been said and we, we could go on and on. Um, but if you have enjoyed our discussion today uh, around uh, the beginnings of our suffrage movement and where we've come to, um, you might like to um, go further and become the proud owner of a rather glorious house in Christchurch. I noticed that uh, Cape Shepherd's <coughs> gorgeous villa in Christchurch is actually up for sale this week. And 
this gracious four-bedroom, three-bathroom home with a CV of $3.5 million Oops. could be yours. <laughs> and you could sit in the drawing room where Shepard and her fellow suffragists wrote pamphlets and prepared, prepared speeches. Just another level oh altogether, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Thanks for listening to Going West Audio. You can subscribe to the podcast and our regular updates at goingwestfest.co.nz.